This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Consolation of Philosophy by Anacius Manlius Severinus Boethius Translated by H. R. James Book 3. True Happiness and False Section 12 and Song 12, Orpheus and Eurydice. Then said I, with all my heart, I agree with Plato. Indeed, this is now the second time that these things have been brought back to my mind. First, I lost them through the clogging contact of the body, then after, through the stress of heavy grief. Then she continued, if thou wilt reflect upon thy former admissions, it will not be long before thou dost also recollect that of which erstwhile thou didst confess thyself ignorant. What is that? said I. The principles of the world's government, said she. Yes, I remember my confession, and, although I now anticipate what thou intendest, I have a desire to hear the argument plainly set forth. A while ago thou deemst it beyond all doubt that God doth govern the world. I do not think it doubtful now, nor shall I ever, and by what reasons I am brought to this assurance I will briefly set forth. This world could never have taken shape as a single system out of parts so diverse and opposite were it not that there is one who joins together these so diverse things, and when it had once come together the very diversity of natures would have dissevered it, and torn it asunder in universal discord, were there not one who keeps together what he has joined. Nor would the order of nature proceed so regularly, nor could its course exhibit motion so fixed in respect of position, time, range, efficacy, and character, unless there were one who, himself abiding, disposed these various vicissitudes of change, this power, whatsoever it be, whereby they remain as they were created and are kept in motion, I call by the name which all recognize, God. Then said she, seeing that such is thy belief, it will cost me little trouble, I think, to enable thee to win happiness and return in safety to thy own country. But let us give our attention to the task that we have set before ourselves. Have we not counted independence in the category of happiness, and agreed that God is absolute happiness? Truly, we have. Then, he will need no external assistance for the ruling of the world. Otherwise, if he stands in need of aught, he will not possess complete independence. That is necessarily so, said I. Then, by his own power alone, he disposes all things. It cannot be denied. Now, God was proved to be absolute good. Yes, I, I remember. Then, he disposes all things by the agency of good, if it be true that he rules all things by his own power, whom we have agreed to be good, and he is, as it were, the rudder and helm by which the world's mechanism is kept steady and in order. Heartily do I agree, and indeed, I anticipated what thou wouldst say, though it may be in feeble surmise only. 
I well believe it, said she, for, as I think, thou now bringest to the search eyes quicker in discerning truth, but what I shall say next is no less plain and easy to see. What is it? said I. Why, said she, since God is rightly believed to govern all things with the rudder of goodness, and since all things do likewise, as I have taught, haste towards good by the very aim of nature, can it be doubted that his governance is willingly accepted, and that all submit themselves to the sway of the disposer as conformed and attempered to his rule? Necessarily so, said I. No rule would seem happy if it were a yoke imposed on reluctant wills, and not the safekeeping of obedient subjects. There is nothing, then, which, while it follows nature, endeavors to resist good? No, nothing. But if anything should, will it have the least success against him whom we rightly agreed to be the supreme lord of happiness? It would be utterly impotent. There is nothing, then, which has either the will or the power to oppose this supreme good. No, I think not. So then, said she, it is the supreme good which rules in strength and graciously disposes all things. Then, said I, how delighted am I at thy reasonings and the conclusion to which thou hast brought them, but most of all at these very words which thou usest. I am now at last ashamed of the folly that so sorely vexed me. Thou hast heard the story of the giants assailing heaven, but a beneficent strength disposed of them also, as they deserved. But shall we submit our arguments to the shock of mutual collision? It may be, from the impact, some fair spark of truth may be struck out. If it be thy good pleasure, said I. No one can doubt that God is all-powerful. No one at all can question it who thinks consistently. Now, there is nothing which one who is all-powerful cannot do. Nothing. But can God do evil, then? Nay, by no means. Then evil is nothing, said she, since he to whom nothing is impossible is unable to do evil. Art thou mocking me, said I, weaving a labyrinth of tangled arguments, now seeming to begin where thou didst end, and now to end where thou didst begin? Or dost thou build up some wondrous circle of divine simplicity? For, truly, a little before, thou didst begin with happiness, and say it was the supreme good, and didst declare it to be seated in the supreme Godhead. God himself, too, Thou didst affirm to be supreme good and all complete happiness, and from this thou didst go on to add, as by the way, the proof that no one would be happy unless he were likewise God. Again, thou didst say that the very form of good was the essence both of God and of happiness, and didst teach that the absolute one was the absolute good which was sought by universal nature. Thou didst maintain also that God rules the universe by the governance of goodness, that all things obey him willingly, and that evil has no existence in nature. And all this 
Thou didst unfold without the help of assumptions from without, but by inherent and proper proofs, drawing credence, one from the other. Then answered she, Far is it from me to mock thee, nay, by the blessing of God, whom we lately addressed in prayer, we have achieved the most important of all objects, for such is the form of the divine essence, that neither can it pass into things external, nor take up anything external into itself, but as Parmenides says of it, in body like to a sphere on all sides perfectly rounded, it rolls the restless orb of the universe, keeping itself motionless the while. And if I have also employed reasonings not drawn from without, but lying within the compass of our subject, there is no cause for thee to marvel, since thou hast learned on Plato's authority that words ought to be akin to the matter of which they treat. Song 12. Orpheus and Eurydice. Blessed he whose feet have stood beside the fount of good, blessed he whose will could break earth's chains for wisdom's sake. The Thracian bard, tis said, mourned his dear consort dead. To hear the plaintive strain, the woods moved in his train, and the stream ceased to flow, held by so soft a woe, the dear without dismay, beside the lion lay, the hound, by song subdued, no more the hare pursued, but the pang unassuaged, in his own bosom raged, the music that could calm all else brought him no balm, chiding the powers immortal, he came unto hell's portal, there breathed all tender things upon his sounding strings, each rhapsody high wrought his goddess mother taught, all he from grief could borrow, and love redoubling sorrow, till, as the echoes waken, Altanerus is shaken, whilst he to Ruth persuades the monarch of the shades with dulcet prayer, spellbound the triple-headed hound at sounds so strangely sweet falls crouching at his feet. The dread avengers, too, that guilty minds pursue, with ever-haunting fears, are all dissolved in tears. Ixion, on his wheel, a respite brief doth feel, for, lo, the wheel stands still, and while those sad notes trill, thirst-maddened Tantalus listens, oblivious of the stream's mockery and his long agony. The vulture, too, doth spare some little while to tear, at Titius's rent side, sated and pacified. At length the shadowy king, his sorrows pitying, He hath prevailed, cried, we give him back his bride. To him she shall belong, as guerdon of his song. One sole condition yet upon the boon is set, let him not turn his eyes to view his hard-won prize till they securely pass the gates of hell. Alas, what law can lovers move? A higher law is love. For Orpheus, woe is me, on his Eurydice, day's threshold all but one, looked, lost, and was undone. Ye who the light pursue, 
this story is for you, who seek to find a way unto the clearer day. If on the darkness past one backward look ye cast, your weak and wandering eyes have lost the matchless prize. End Book 3 True Happiness and False Section 12 and Song 12 Orpheus and Eurydice